Washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not. Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. I try not to cry When I tucked you into bed last night You said, Mama, what is wrong? Baby, where do I start? Though the world at times Has me questioning and wondering why What's the point of all that pain? Oh, what is there to gain? Answer the phone when your mama calls Turns out life ain't that long after all Don't look down and hold on tight Life is an up-down roller coaster ride Try to enjoy the ride Molly Roth and Haley Garland, thank you so much. 
So when we were talking about a song for the show, yes, and we were talking about um, maybe a letter to your daughters or some sort of encouraging them to live their lives, and then the school massacre in Uvalde happened. Yes. And I got this series of texts from you, and you were you just revealing how distraught you were and how upset and how uh, angry and overall saying, I think I'm going to change the song. Yeah, I mean, how could I not? After um, hearing what happened at Uvalde, I felt completely helpless, um, devastated, and that completely changed what I wanted to, to tell my daughters. Yeah. Both of my daughters are full swing daredevils, 100% speed, never slow down. Uh, so I want them to remember that, yes, you are brave and fearless, and I know you will tackle life 100% and give it your all, but you can slow down. You don't have to be brave all the time. Yeah. And there's so many good things to enjoy if you just take that moment to pause. One of the things that you were saying was, I, I feel like I should do something. I don't know what to do. And like, we don't know what to do. So I went online and I was looking for, I don't know, anything. I went to Moms Demand Action. My sister and brother-in-law are huge Moms Demand Action people in Seattle. And I thought, well, then maybe they have something going on. And they had a march during Wear Orange Weekend in Stillwater, where you live. Yep. And just like a week later, two weeks later, and you went. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I went with my mother-in-law and um, another family member, and it was extremely powerful. The years prior, the, um, about 12 to 15 people showed up in attendance. Um, but this year, um, just about 200 people showed up to yeah. march. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great. And, you know, movements need numbers, right? I mean, we have a movement on the island, WW Shush, when women show up, shit happens. <laughs> and we, you know, right? So, and we need members, right? So, you showed up. Thank you for showing up. Thank you. Thank you. Zippy Lasky. Zippy Lasky. <laughs> right before Uvalde was the tragic massacre in the grocery store in Buffalo, New York, perpetrated by a very avowed, very proud white supremacist, right, who live-streamed the carnage. Another 18-year-old with an AR-15. This one, an avid believer in the Tucker Carlson School of Replacement Theory. And you know what, Tucker? I'm all for replacement theory if you go first. <laughs> so, no, I, here's my idea. We replace you with one of the very, very talented young journalists of color with Black Press Newsroom. Right, exactly. Let's do that, right? And being replaced, you go home and you tell us what it's like every day as you sit outside in a lounge chair and you yell at the neighbor kids to get the hell off of your lawn. And you could live stream it, Tucker. How about that? Everybody could watch you doing it. Sigh. Anyway, so after the school massacre, I posted a brief statement on Facebook. You know, what do you say? It just said, you cannot be pro-life and pro-gun. That's how I felt. Okay. I didn't originate the statement. I don't take credit for it. But at the moment, it summed up for me, as simply as I could, my utter confusion 
with the people who say they are Christians and yet are vehemently opposed to absolutely any kind of gun safety measures that could save lives. I do not remember Jesus with a gun, but maybe I was sick that day. I mean, maybe it was in a parable that I missed. So I got some affirming responses to my post, right? And then I got a response from a guy stating that my statement was typical liberal gibberish and informing me that my statement was completely out of context. Okay, first, how he found the Island of Discarded Women Facebook page. <laughs> kind of curious, right? I mean, we make it clear, right, that the podcast is open to all, so I guess all means all, right? So come on in, everybody. So I wanted to respond. I really, 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 really wanted to respond, and I could hear that little voice in my head saying, don't respond, don't respond, do not, do Sue, walk away, just walk away, just let it go, do not respond. And I didn't listen to that little voice in my head, and I did respond. I started with, hey, a liberal gibberish author here, clearly you don't agree, but the context makes complete sense to me. And that was it. And he responded with a diatribe, it was, it was a fairly, uh, fairly long diatribe, about how guns are inanimate objects, and hence, that was his word, hence, harmless, and that if you do away with guns, bad people will choose another weapon to kill. And I say, well, yes, but how easily accessible that inanimate object is makes a difference. The high-capacity weapons used in Buffalo and Uvalde, you know, they had all the power in that situation. Those guns had all the power in that situation. We know that now, right? Right? But again, I said, but I understand that you do not agree with me. And he responded again, saying, no, 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 no. Problem isn't guns, it's the violent tendency in people. You take away the guns, massacres will still happen. And I said, okay, see, I think the accessibility of those weapons to kill as many people as quickly as possible, that is the problem. It's too easy to kill with a gun. And then I summed it up again. Clearly, we don't agree. And this time I added, but I appreciate the discussion. And not a word from him since. Now, I am under no pretense that I changed this guy's mind. No, I'm sure he just got bored. Oh, she's not going to play. But it was interesting because after he initially used that sort of attack, you know, the liberal gibberish thing, blah, 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 you're so stupid, he dropped all that. And the rest of the conversation, the back and forth, which was quite a bit, was very civil. And I appreciated that. We were both dug in. We were both very dug in. And yet... Maybe there's hope. I don't know. Please welcome Brittany Delaney. All right. So I've been, um, this piece is about my name. And for the past couple of weeks, um, sort of from everywhere, I've been sort of having these discussions about our names, both being us, both not being us, um, about what it means to have Southern parents who name you for employability, um, about what it looks like today, realizing that those names didn't save us. I have a Brianna in my family. We sit just one week past Brianna Taylor's birthday with no justice still. So I wrote out this story and, and I'm gonna share it with you all. There is a Southern lullaby that reads, you'll respect my son because I named him Mr. 
You'll see the need to protect my daughter because I named her sister. Won't no job deny you with a name like this. You'll look like us, but you'll sound like this. My name is Brittany Delaney. T-T-A-N-Y-A-N-E-Y, the middle of eight brown children born to roots originated south of the Mason-Dixon line, created somewhere else on island time. It was quite a trip here. Brittany, like Spears, like Murphy, unlike a brown girl with 4A coils born to St. Paul Street, surrounded by other brown girls whose hyphens slice through their names like grammar holds no power over the natural role of an Afro tongue. Unlike girls with ah at the end of their first, girls whose parents painted the syllables of their names with jump sequences so they stick out like solos in a sea of keep your head down and do your job chorus members. Unlike the kind of girls who roll their eyes and pop their necks like it's a part of their pronunciation because their parents gave them full body names, the kind that sound like full lips and wide noses, big brown eyes and waistlines that live in motion like each click and pop is the pouring of libations to ancestors who first swayed like this like a prayer tapped into their hips like Morris code from God's fingertips, Brittany. Like girls with blonde hair, blue eyes, and low-riding jeans in the early 2000s, but brown. Unlike the type of girls they admit to IBAP English classes in Central High School, but we'll come back to that. Picture this with me. All of your life, you are one whole person split strategically in two and placed somewhere in this universe searching for the missing piece of yourself. And the moment you find her, tucked neatly in Colorado in the early 80s, you recognize her through a stampede of suitors because her footsteps tap the ground like a homing call, one that can only dial your number. You court her like you've done in every lifetime. With Stevie Wonder, you and I playing in the backdrop of a church in St. Paul in the November winter of 1984, you pledge your life to her as if she needed you to say what you both already knew. You breathe better with your missing rib finally home here and on your chest again. So you combine your lineage 15 times eight who will arrive earthside relatively unharmed and you place each one between the two of you to admire what your love has made. And just as you are ready to give this collaboration with God a name, you remember that you are black in a world that clings onto constructs like periods to the end of sentences served mostly by the people who look like your love, those who look like what your love created. You know your children won't be seen as babies as long as they will actually be, so you try your best to paint them unthreatening. Employable name, check. Hammer yes and ma'am and yes sir to the end of every word, check. Perm the curls from their scalps to lay at attention so the locks in their hair don't inspire the bars in others' minds, check. Adorn your ears with pearls so they know you are trying to add as much white to your body as you can check religion check Brittany turn those hips off the way you're moving is a sin check you are not like those girls your name and your features have never met everything you need in this world is above your neck use those eyes to oversee that body keep your black and check Brittany French English Celtic origin a 13 year old freshman skipped a grade for being intelligent asked 14 times are you sure you're in the right class attendance call is Keisha here while looking at me because that sounds like it fits more my teacher tripping and stumbling over B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. She sees me like the type of girl who carry full body name, robust like the wine on her breath in fourth period. She slurs the letters because to her, I look like the type of girl whose names you pronounce in cursive. Not this common sound I share with people who usually live long enough to discover their purpose. My parents gave me the kind of name that makes it home at the end of the day. Gave me the kind of respectability politics that rejects my bones but embraces them surviving. They taught me to control the role of my Afro tongue. 
because the job at the end of the day is to make it home alive. My whole life is mismatched for the sake of better optics. I don't look like I sound. I don't sound like I dance. I don't dance like I'm me. I was raised both the slave working and the slave that oversees. So if you see me popping my neck, if you catch me rolling my eyes, know that I am just trying to break free. Like it's a part of my pronunciation. Like I have a full body name, the kind that sounds like my full lips and my wide nose, big brown eyes and waistline that lives in motion like each click and pop is pouring of libations to ancestors who swayed like this the first time. Like a prayer that was tapped into my hips, like Morse code from God's fingertips. Call me by my sound. Call me by the love story that made me add breath between the letters T-T-A-N-Y. That is how you spell Brittany. Thank you. Brittany Delaney. Brittany Delaney. Thank you, Brittany. Please welcome our music guest for tonight, Judah Gardner. Come on up, Judah. Come on up. So, Judah. Hey, Judah. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate it. So, you are, you're a high school kid. Yes, I'm a high school be. student, I should say. <laughs> Go for it. I'll be a senior at Minnetonka next year. Minnetonka. We got a Minnetonka. Anybody in Minnetonka? We got a Minnetonka. Hey, we got a Minnetonka. Minnetonka's in the house. Okay. Um, how long have you been writing and singing your own songs? Um, I wrote my first song when I was about eight years old, and I've been performing my music since I was about 12, 13. Wow. Okay. Okay. So this first song that you're going to sing, I Still Stand, tell me what the background is on this story. A couple years ago, I want to say I was about 14 years old, my older brother, he was like, hey, I have a friend, she's a musician, and she really wants an original song, do you want to write it for her? And I was like, yes, like, of course. So he gave me her info, and she was talking to me about what she wanted the song to be about, how she wanted it to be about her life story, and she was like, I come from a place that no one really believed I would make anything of myself and they thought that I would never do anything with my life, so I want to write a song that kind of says, hey, you were wrong about me, and I made it despite you not believing in me. So yeah. that's what I did. Okay, I still stand. Try every day, close. 
closed every door But I There's just no stopping me Oh, oh, I'm going further than you could in your wildest dreams Cause no one is going to tell me what I'm gonna be But for everything I got I climbed up the mountain and came out on top I love to hear what you have to say But I'm so done with limits after all I faced Struggles, hurdles, troubles My life turned out exactly how I had planned Cause I still stand Thank you, thank you, thank you, Judah. Judah will be back. Judah will be back to sing another song. Yes. Thank you so much, Judah. Okay, so with all that has been happening this month, it's a scary time. And how we navigate this time will be very important. How we band together and do this together. There are people committed to helping us do that navigating, which is terrific. Our engineer, Catherine Horowitz, has helped with that kind of navigating. She is here now, she has just changed hats. She actually wears a hat when she's an engineer, and now she doesn't wear the hat. And she's gonna join us right now to share a story. Catherine Horowitz. Thank you. My mother was the first feminist I knew. She was also a devoted Catholic and firmly pro-choice. Mom derived a deep sense of peace and community from the church and from leading her congregation in song. She also held on to 1950s ideals of being ladylike and always having dinner on the table for me and dad. To her, I never wore skirts as much as I should, made too many sex jokes, and swore too much. I still don't and still do and do. <laughs> but at the same time, she was a member of the League of Women Voters, volunteered for the Peace Corps in Ecuador, held a master's degree in public health, was the mayor of our city, was passionate about waste management and domestic violence prevention, and was a firm believer in abortion rights. So firm that upon attending as mayor a ribbon cutting ceremony for the abortion clinic in our city, she was kicked out of the church choir by her priest. This broke her heart. 
but she somehow managed to hold fast onto both her belief in God and in bodily autonomy. She continued her work for reproductive rights, and she found a new church and led them in song. My mom died on June 21st, 2003. I still love and miss her very much. And although I am now an agnostic who only sometimes makes dinner on time, I carry with me her measured, passionate activism for reproductive justice and rights. Up until recently, I was a clinic escort for two abortion clinics in the metro area. So clinic escorts are pretty much the first physical line of defense in the process to obtain an abortion. We are the people in bright, dorky vests at the entrance to the clinic, rain or shine, hot or freezing, waving you in and walking you to the door, all the while shielding you from the anti-abortion sidewalk counselors on the edge of the property. These are people holding pictures of large bloody body parts and signs that say, God loves you and your baby. These are the people who yell at you, either condemning you to hell or asking you to please don't kill your baby or somehow both at the same time. These are people who purposely misdirect you to the fake clinic across the street. These are the people who will go to enormous lengths to interfere with, confuse, and upset you, a person seeking abortion care. They glower at us escorts with looks that could kill. They scream invectives at us. They call the police. They pray at us. They run up to patients' cars and shove pamphlets inside. They bring their kids. They blare religious music from Bluetooth speakers. They build deer stands that overlook the fence that divides their property from the clinic so they can continue visibly yelling at patients. And these people, they know absolutely nothing about the circumstances under which women and girls seek abortion. The married woman in her 30s, who drove up with her two children and her sister, who hadn't intended to become pregnant, maintains a large farm in the heartland and knows that neither she or her husband can financially provide for another child. The elderly Somali mother who accompanied her daughter to the clinic. She doesn't speak English, but she definitely understands the acrimonious fury coming from the sidewalk, no matter how much I try to shield her, and she is frightened by it. The young man accompanying his girlfriend. He told me he's worried for her, but he loves her so much, and he knows she is making the best decision for her and for their relationship. But in his fragile emotional state, he can't help but lash out at the man on the deer stand, pointedly telling him that black babies' lives matter. The teenager who is never taught proper sex ed and who is confused and insecure about their identity. They're also, you know, a teenager, and teenagers are impulsive and hormonal but they still really want to go to college and earn their business degree and see the world, help the world, and have a family. The woman in an abusive relationship who, for whatever reason that is not our business, cannot or will not leave. She may or may not already have a child with this man. She knows he will become violent if he finds out she's pregnant, and he certainly will be violent toward the child. She does not want it to have to endure that kind of life. A young woman whose birth control failed, a girl who was coerced into sex for her own survival. A woman whose very much wanted fetus has a fatal anomaly. A woman who waves hello to me and confidently walks into the clinic because she knows herself and she knows her life and she knows that she cannot and does not want to become pregnant or have a child right now. These are the reasons women and girls have abortions and these are the people escorts see every day. And your daughters, Sisters, mothers, friends, aunts, nieces, cousins, 
with their personalities and their livelihoods and their families and their messy, complicated, difficult circumstances that you may not always agree with, they matter. And their right to choose is worth defending. These are the women and girls my mother and others like her fought for. I am that woman she fought for. My nieces and cousins and friends' daughters are the women I fight for. And much like my mother, I will never, ever stop fighting to keep abortion safe, legal, and accessible. Thank you. Thank you, Katherine Horowitz. Thank you so much, Katherine. Thank you, thank you. Katherine is now going to go crawling back behind the soundboard. So Day. Hi, Sue. Day Yang. Day Yang, everybody. Um, when you and I were talking uh, weeks ago about writing something for this show, mm -hmm. I was so struck by our special guest, Georgia Ford's mission statement, changing the narrative. Yeah. And I was looking for, I was curious for other ways to express that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, things came up like getting new perspectives or new understandings or that kind of thing. And you said that that struck a chord with you. And you shared with me that when you were four years old, you started assuming a lot of the parental duties in your home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There were really simple things like um, getting breakfast for my siblings. So like I remember crawling onto the kitchen counter and then opening the cupboard, grabbing the cereal, put it in a bowl, put it on the ground, open the fridge, drag the gallon of milk out and then slowly try to pour it without spilling the milk everywhere. Uh, just little things and, like that. And you're, four, and you're four years old. Four, yep. yeah. Then at five, you moved up to preparing meat, you said. Yeah, I yeah. learned how to cook beef, chicken, and pork at five. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> So at the same time that we're talking about this, an article from The Atlantic magazine written in 2017 just, just popped up in my Facebook feed, just out of nowhere. And it was all about the concept of parentification, mm. which is when young children take over the parental duties and basically raise their younger siblings, but then have no childhood of their own. And I sent that article to you. Yeah. And you had a reaction to that. Yeah, I did. It explained a lot. Yeah. Um, right around high school, I guess I started noticing that I had like a lot of codependency issues, a lot of um, mental health issues that normally could be genetic, but was not. It did not run in my family, and I did not understand why I had those. And reading that article, it resonated with me, and it made me feel seen. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense now. Yeah, because I'm sure when you were four and five, that's just what was happening. Right. And then you're in high school, you're going, okay, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. You're feeling differently about this now, as you're a little older. Yes. Now that I'm older, um, looking back at my childhood, I understand that my mom struggled with severe depression. She had a lot of trauma that she was not able to work through. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I can't imagine that pressure. And then on top of what everyone expects of you as a mother and then your own kids to tell you you're not being the mom that I want. Yeah. And so I, I can only imagine it's, it was very, very difficult. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it's not what would have been ideal for a child, but it, it is what it is. It was what it was. Um, and, yeah, I, I just changed and, my perspective. Yeah, you changed your perspective. Yes. So when I asked her about writing this into a story, all of this, 
thought it would be really, really powerful. She responded on email and said, actually, I wrote it into a song. I did. <laughs> so here, making her music debut on our show, is Day Yang singing her brand new song called I Can't Help, with Zippy Lasky singing back up.
You didn't know any better You wanted the world and you withered You withered You didn't know any better Day Yang, thank you, Day. Thank you for sharing that very, very moving story of gaining a new perspective. And thank you very much, Day. Appreciate that. Okay, Judah Gardner, time for song number two. Judah is part of a very exciting project that involves some local high school kids, students, actors, musicians. They're all part of a nonprofit called Legacy Arts Group. And four of you of this group have collaborated on an original production called The Beautiful Ugly. And you've been invited to perform this show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August. Woo! Yes. And it's the Fringe among Fringe, it's the original Fringe, actually, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, and you're working on raising funds to help pay for, for all the expenses. And so if people are so moved, you can donate at www.legacyartsgroup.com. So, Judah, what is the beautiful, ugly, this, is it like a play, a musical? Is it a play and a musical? It's a thing? It's, what is it? So, um, our director, Miss French, um, she actually was the person at the Fringe um, reached out to because they, want, they had seen her do things in the community. She's a dance choreographer, an amazing, amazing person, and she had been invited, so she wanted to make sure that these kids could go, so she created Legacy Arts Group, and she wanted to tell a story about, you know, youth children in Minneapolis, you know, especially living as people of color, especially as black people of mm -hmm. color, and, you know, what that would look like. So the original cast was actually around 13 people, and I auditioned when she was recasting due to COVID, because they were invited earlier, but then COVID oh, because shut of everything COVID. down. Sure, of course, yes, 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 right. So the new cast now was downsized from 13 to four. So tell us about the premise of the show. What, what is it about? Um, the Beautiful Ugly is a play that also has songs. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a musical, but okay. it is a play that has songs. Okay. And it is three scenes all comprised following some characters who are around our age, who are high school students living in Minneapolis. And some of it talks about you know violence and crime and how that impacts a community. Some of it is talking about anxiety and how the events of George Floyd and COVID impacted youth. And some of it is just, you know, us making fun of our teacher in a classroom setting. Because, <laughs> because you're supposed to do that. That's what you're supposed to do when you're a high school kid. Of course, of course, of course. So this song that you're going to sing right now, you wrote for that production. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, around our like first rehearsal as a new cast, Ms. French had told us to reflect on the events of 2020 and just spend 15 minutes and write anything about it. And so me being me, I wrote a song, or at least I wrote the of first course, verse Nash, in the chorus. Of course, songs, yeah, <laughs> right, okay. And um, I played it at practice, and she was like, you have to finish this, and this has to be in the show. And then it kind of transformed into this now thing that's bigger than it was when I wrote it, and it's really special to me that I get to share it with you guys. Yeah, and it's called Aftermath.
was it like before my house was a cage I'm trapped inside and what did I do before I stared at the ceiling in my room and how many friends did I have because it was convenient and what was I like before I was questioning everything in my mind the days blur in front of my face I keep trying to turn the page but every step forward is two steps back what happens in the aftermath time flying What happens in the aftermath? Ooh. Ooh. Wanting the days before life was stuck in a holding face, fearing the truth. What happens to the ones the world wants to use? And how many lives will forever be changed but will cast aside? Wanting the days back when life wasn't stuck, playing waiting games. The world burns in front of my face. I keep trying to find my place, but every step forward is two steps back. What happens in the aftermath? Time flying by right in front of my eyes. Oh, some things you just can't get back. What happens in the aftermath? The days blur in front of my face I keep trying to find my place But every step forward is two steps back What happens in the aftermath? Time flying by Right in front of my eyes Oh, some things you just can't get back What happens in the aftermath? Gardner. Thank you, Judah. Thank you so much. Have fun in Scotland. Have fun in Scotland. Oh, that's so great. Okay, now please help me welcome my guest for the conversation, Georgia Fort. Hey, Georgia. Good evening. Thank you for coming and doing this. And, be, and look how beautiful you are with the, the red and the yellow and the black. It is See a pleasure thing? to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Wow, we've just had a lot of cool stuff tonight, haven't we? If I do say so myself. I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound like I'm just kind of blown away with all this stuff. So, you are a two-time Emmy-nominated journalist. Your reporting has been published on CNN and ABC and Fox and all the others. You've worked with PBS Frontline's American Voices, 
In 2020, you worked as a field producer for NBC Today Show Online, where you created a piece about the Say Their Name Cemetery in Minneapolis, uh, near George Floyd Square, and other award-winning pieces surrounding George Floyd's murder. You are now an independent journalist and founder of Black Press, which was initially just you and your camera, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now you're expanding, like I mentioned earlier, to create the Black Press newsroom with all these wonderful opportunities for all these early career journalists of color, which is fantastic. And you're the mother of three girls and the wife of a professional boxer. Yeah. Okay, good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I so love this changing the narrative. Um, and I know that's your, I don't know, logo, buzz phrase, mission, goal. All, all those things. All those things, yeah. Uh, what is the narrative? I mean, I, could, I can tell you what I, I have an opinion. I'm sure we all have an opinion. But what is the narrative that, in your mind, what is the narrative that you're trying to change? I think the best way to explain it is to give examples. So when yeah. you uh, recall uh, George Floyd being murdered, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember the first press release that yeah. was sent out by the Minneapolis Police Department's PIO, their public information officer, but that first press release was their narrative, and their narrative was that a man had died from medical complications during an encounter with an MPD officer. Right. That narrative was grossly inaccurate. Yeah but it was regurgitated by all of the mainstream media outlets mm -hmm. and it shaped public perception, at least until the video from Darnella Frazier mm -hmm. went viral online. But had we not have right. had that video, like in the case of Winston Smith, there is no video, mm -hmm. allegedly. And so we are dependent on the narrative that comes from the people who were there. And while in most cases we'd hope to believe that those narratives are accurate, we here in the city of Minneapolis have some examples of narratives not being accurate. Yeah. And so for me as a journalist, as a black woman who was working in mainstream media here in Minnesota, I'm from St. Paul, and uh, faced discrimination and got pushed out, I started to realize how huge of a need there was for an independent source like myself to call some of these things out. Yeah. Um, your website talks about how you're doing that. The mission as a storyteller is to change the narrative by amplifying the truth, citing diverse sources, and contextualizing social justice issues. I first started following you in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the subsequent rallies and protests and visuals and press conferences, and you were everywhere. Mm -hmm. You and your camera, you were, you were everywhere, day and night, and we got this raw, unflinching glimpse of what was really going on with uh, what the family members were feeling, how the community was grieving, what the demands for change were, and it was so impressive. I kept thinking, does she go home ever? Does she ever go home? You talk about visual stories that's one of the terms from your website as well, which I love, because I really felt like, oh, well, wow, we're really getting to meet all these people. And then there's things like you, you sat down with Ben Crump. You had an interview with Ben Crump uh, when he was in town uh, representing Calvin Horton, a man who had been shot and killed by a shop owner during a protest. Who was um, never charged. Who was never charged. And that was during a protest in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. 
And I'm sure in journalistic talk, that's like a get, where it's like, oh, I got Ben Crump. But I mean, really and truly, he is walking the walk big time, you know, all across the country, especially here. How was that? How did that feel to, to sit down and talk with him? Well, I think because he was there advocating on behalf of Kelvin Horton's family, uh, I, I felt very honored. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think it was so much what happened during the interview that, that still sits with me today. It's what happened after the interview. Okay, what happened after the interview? Every station in town called. Oh, funny. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, right. Because still to this date, no one that I know of has sat down with Crump to do an no. interview. And no. so I think it was the first time where mainstream media really acknowledged that they kind of messed up. Yeah. And so often what we hear from the mainstream media outlets, the news directors, the program directors, you know, whether you're talking from print to TV to radio, oh, we just don't get a lot of diverse applicants. Yeah. Where can we find journalists of color? Well, I apply to every single station mm. in this market, and I was told that I needed more experience, despite being nominated for two Emmys, being a graduate of the University of St. Thomas, having worked in multiple markets. And so it was, it was really frustrating, um, and, and I did feel discarded, <laughs> Yeah, quite right. frankly. Sure, of course, um, yes. Uh, but after the Crump interview, I think was the first time where I realized that I really don't need them. Yeah. And that I was good enough. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yes. Because I'm watching that interview and I'm going, I'm sure they all went like, how did you get this? How did you get this interview? And you're like... I asked. I don't know. Why did you just ask? Well, I mean, journalism is all about relationships. Sure. I mean, you, who's your source? Yeah. Who's your contact? Right. And so being a black woman living in the Twin Cities area, uh, I'm connected to people who are connected to him. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got the interview the same way anybody else would get the interview is through my own contacts, through yeah. my relationships, which was what I had intended to offer any newsroom A Anybody here. else? Yeah. I'm here. Yeah, you're, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. After the, uh, there was the Dante Wright murder during the Chauvin trial. How do you, it's kind of, the, I think this is probably an age-old question, but I don't know the answer. How do you put that distance, that journalistic distance, to covering a story that is just emotional? It could be emotional as a woman, it could be emotional as a black woman, it could be emotional as a community member, it could be, you know, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I don't put distance between me and yeah, my story. Good. Because I, I think when you do that, you lose the humanity. Yeah. And you sometimes can forget that the person on the other side of the camera is a human being just like you. And, you know, I've looked at Oprah's career a lot. She started out in news, mm -hmm. and I believe she was terminated or it didn't work out for her in news because she would cry sometimes when she was interviewing people. Yeah. And I remember specifically with uh, Winston Smith being out there. This was about, what, a couple of months after Dante Wright. Yeah. And in tears, weeping, 
because I just was so tired of being out there. And so one of the things I think that has distinguished me is that I allow my humanity to show in my reporting. And I think it sometimes can help the audience embrace their humanity as well. Yeah. There was a, a post on Facebook that you put, there's a clip of you talking to a group. It's really interesting to me. It says, you said, sometimes there aren't two sides. Sometimes there's only the truth. And that is just, is that not powerful? I mean, it's like, whoa, because you're absolutely right. And the whole thing about, well, we need to get both sides. It's like, no, because maybe there's only one truth. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you are getting two sides, you're getting the truth and a lie. And we wonder how we got here with all the disinformation. Right. It's because journalism, while sometimes there is two sides, and we should have that civil discourse that you talked about earlier, and we should be able to, you know, take time and space out to hold conversations with people to hear their perspectives and their lived experiences. But in some instances, some things are just simply right and wrong. And, And sometimes... If you're looking for the other side of the truth, you're absolutely going to find a lie. Yeah. Let me just go through a little bit of your history here, just just a little bit. So you grew up in St. Paul. You're from Rondo. And you went to St. Thomas, as you mentioned earlier. And you kind of started in radio on the the St. Thomas campus. And then you went to KMOJ here in town. Then you got a job in Columbus, Georgia. And, uh, And then you transitioned to commercial radio. And then that you ended up in news and then TV news. How was it growing up in St. Paul and moving to Georgia? Was it a big deal? Was it different besides the weather? I loved Columbus. Yeah. I, I would say a lot of people thought it was going to be culture shock for me yeah. moving to Columbus, but I felt right at home. I found out later that my aunt and my uncle and a couple of my cousins actually used to live in Columbus, Georgia. Oh, really? And a few of them were born in Columbus, Georgia. So it was really odd that I ended up getting a job there of all places. But the real culture shock actually came when I moved to Duluth. Oh. Yeah. Which was was right... (laughs) Which was right after your stint in uh, your years in, in, in Georgia. And that's my next question. You had an anchor job. Yep. You had an anchor job. Yep. And at one point, you do a story on the chief of police of Duluth, uh, whose great aunt was the woman in 1920 who falsely accused several black circus workers of raping her. And they were arrested briefly, and the three of them were pulled out of the jail by a mob and lynched, hung from the lamppost uh, on the street corner across the street. And it's a, really, it's a really powerful... It's still on your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. It's, still, it's still there. And um, there's a really powerful memorial to those three, um, those three men at that same corner where it happened in Duluth to this day. It's really, really powerful if you're up there in the area. So you get this interview with the chief of police, Mike Tuscan, and you do this great story. He's talking about all the lasting trauma and the shame and how he has a hard time driving past that corner without feeling shame because he knows his family was part of of the story. And after the story airs, you get terminated. Okay, what is that about? Oh, it wasn't because of the story, allegedly. Yeah, 
Because there's two sides, remember? Remember there's two sides? Yeah, two weeks after the story aired, I was legally terminated because I wasn't eligible for maternity leave. You know, like you do. So either way, I mean, if it was because I did the story, or I, I, if it's because I Yeah, was... the other one doesn't make sense either. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> How, okay, you talk about systemic racism, you feel played a role in you losing that job. Absolutely. I think that if I were a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes, I, someone would have found a way to keep my job. And so, you know, my husband and I, we were expecting our first child together. And she's four now. Her name is Aliani. Um, but yeah, I gave birth to her two weeks too soon to be eligible for a maternity leave under federal law. Um, FMLA, Federal Medical Leave Act, you have to work for a company for 12 months in order to be eligible for maternity leave. And of course, cities and states and counties and employers can offer better maternity packages or benefits than that, or parental leaves. Now, mm -hmm. you know, we're being more inclusive and creating time off for men as well, which is great, or for adopted parents, which is awesome, right? But as a, a woman, I mean, either way, any way a baby gets here, it comes through our womb. And so it was, um, it was really humbling to be in the 21st century and be legally terminated because you have a baby. Yeah. But uh, for me, you know, I had worked so hard to get that job as a morning anchor. Yeah. I, I could remember times in Columbus, Georgia and working two and three jobs and working on my, my sick days and vacation days. And I mean, I, was, I, I literally worked tirelessly um, to get to that point. And I was so elated to have that job. It meant everything to me. And so to have it taken felt very unfair. And I had to do a lot of soul searching. I oddly was really optimistic when it happened that this was going to be the time for me to come back home to my hometown and finally get hired here in the Twin Cities. But obviously, that wasn't the case, right? And so when I started to acknowledge that that was my reality, that I wasn't going to get hired here, I had to have a real conversation with myself about what it was that I wanted. Mm -hmm. Because for more than a decade, all I did my whole career was broadcasting. Yeah. Radio, I, I was in radio as soon as I was done with college. I was working full-time in radio and then transitioned into TV. It was all I knew. And I just couldn't comprehend going to get like a PR communications job. I really love telling stories. Yeah. And so it took a while. I did work a few odd jobs, but I, I kept coming back to this idea of being an independent journalist and looking at the 13,000 followers that I had accumulated over the last 10 years working all these different um, jobs at radio stations and TV stations and saying, well, you know, 13,000 isn't a lot, but it's not a little either. No. And so I just activated my own platform. Yeah. And within 18 months, I've grown that 13,000 uh, following to 100,000. Yeah, yes. Yes, terrific. Um, you talked about your why. When we were talking on the phone uh, last week, you were talking about one of the whys that drives you. And you mentioned your first child, Georgia Amana. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you were 19 and in college when she was born. And when she was five months old, she died from a tragic accident. She rolled over on a couch, had a babysitter's and, and did not survive. And at first, I'm so sorry for that loss for you. Um, but you were saying that you found such comfort in talking to other women that had lost children, especially lost babies in, during tragic accidents like that. And, and that that really drives you. Yeah, losing a child is one of the most difficult things to endure. And I've met a lot of people who don't overcome it. Yeah. So for me, you know, to be on the other side of that type of grief, I feel very called to work with women who are grieving the loss of their children. And I, I mean, TV news, I think it's perceived as like this really glamorous thing. Uh, but for me, it's not. Uh, I, I mean, it depends. Maybe for Tucker Carlson, maybe for him. Uh, but for me, I realized uh, very early that my calling in TV news had nothing to do with the five o'clock newscast. And it had everything to do with the prayer before or after an interview with a mother who literally just found out that her son had been killed. Yeah. So you're, so you're saying that being in all the protests, the rallies, the press conferences, there's so many of these press conferences, oh my gosh, where these women, you know, whether it's um, Dante Wright's mother, Katie Wright, or um, you know, all the different mothers, and you just think, how do you not get pulled in? How, do, how does one not get pulled in? Regardless of the circumstances even. It's like, wow, just to feel their pain. And so I think that's what you were saying to me earlier. It's that that, that resonates with you big time as far as that, that, your why. You also have a podcast, a new podcast that you're, that you're producing called The Mothers. Yeah. We launched it on Mother's Day. This has been in the making for a really long time. In fact, I would say about two or three years before George Floyd was murdered, we were really called to those types of stories. Yeah. Recognizing, I think, with the injustice of what happened to Philando Castile and just kind of wanting to do something. Yeah. And so... Two years before George Floyd was killed, we had interviewed more than a dozen mothers from nearly a dozen states. Wow. And then when George Floyd was murdered, we kind of took a step back and realized, A, we were a bit ahead of our time in collecting these stories. Yeah. And B, that there was a much bigger story here yeah. now. Because when we started talking to mothers whose children were killed by police, first of all, nobody would fund it. And most of the public wasn't really ready to have a real conversation about the disparities that we see in public safety. Yeah. Where you live personally and, and, and the work that you do, there was an interview that you posted a, a while ago that you said was the first time that you had done that. You said that in the post, the first time you had done that. And it's an interview with your brother mm -hmm. who was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me that one of the reasons why you wanted to do that was uh, all of, of the stories and the people and the reporting of George Floyd that was dismissing his humanity. Oh, he's got a counterfeit 20, he must be a criminal. And so thus, 
you murder him in the street in front of everybody? Yeah, I don't think so. We have due process here in this country. So it doesn't really matter what they did. There's still humanity there. And what motivated you to maybe connect with your brother and to share that with, it, with your followers was to say, um, there's humanity there. Yeah. There's humanity in all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't talk about my brother a ton because I think, uh, just to be very frank, it's not palatable, right? To be a journalist, it probably um, diminishes my quote-unquote credibility. Why would you say that? Because already I'm a black woman, yeah. and then I have a brother who's serving a life sentence. And so I, I don't talk about it a lot, yeah. but part of why I work so hard is because I dream of a day when I have enough disposable income to go and live in Pennsylvania and fight for his freedom. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. God bless you. God bless you. Wow. But yeah. he, he's a father of three. And, um, you know, thinking of my brother, it reminds me of just how fortunate and, and blessed I have been to not become a product of my environment. Mm. You know, sometimes people are born into circumstances that they have no control over, as we heard from uh, Day earlier yeah. in, in her song. Like some of us were born into circumstances we have no control over, and we're trying to survive, we're trying to do the best that we can. My brother didn't have his father, and neither did I growing up. His mother was a crackhead, she was strung out on drugs, and he was not only trying to take care of himself at the age of eight or nine, but also take care of his mom. And he made some really poor decisions. And as a result, he's now sitting in jail for yeah. life, but he was sentenced to life at the age of 19. Wow. And uh, with three kids who now, are, like the cycle continues. Now you have three children who don't have their father. Right. And are not guided through life. And so when I see people like George Floyd and uh, so many Americans dismiss him as being a criminal, mm -hmm. They dehumanize him because he made a poor decision. Yeah. I don't have the privilege of doing that because I know people who have made poor decisions. I'm related to people who have made poor decisions. I love people who have made poor decisions. Right, yes, yes. And so I still see humanity and yeah. even some of the most horrific situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and with your your expansion, you, you went, you know, you went, you went solo or, you know, independent and you had your camera and you were everywhere. And now you're expanding and uh, to a newsroom and you've got these young journalists who you're going to be mentoring and they're going to be out there doing their thing. And how wonderful that is to, I think the best thing that ever happened to you that, I think the best thing that happened to us, I should say, was that you lost that anchor job mm, in Duluth. Thank you. I mean, really, don't you think? Because otherwise, people are like, don't say that. That's terrible to say that. No, but then you would be having to get up early every morning. <laughs> well, you when, I, I mean? when I stayed in the cities with my husband, it was 1 a.m. And I drive up to be there by 3 or 4 in snowstorms. It was terrible. No, <laughs> ick. Okay, I do have to ask you, you have a drone. I do. Is that new? Um, no. I got my drone like maybe two or three years ago. She calls I it love, my drone. She I love my flying drone. it. 
I got my drone. I do not have a drone, Georgia, so it you're better so than me. It is so amazing to see the world from a different perspective. I bet. And um, I had to find ways to set myself apart because I'm an independent journalist and I don't have an editor and I don't have a photographer and I don't have all of the things that mainstream media has. I still wanted to stand out. I wanted to have my coverage be distinguished in its own way. Yeah. And so I made the investment in a drone, which is not a cheap piece of equipment. Sure. And I also made the investment in learning how to use it. I was going to say. Because it absolutely sets my work apart yeah. from other people in this market. Who needs a helicopter? I got a drone. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming here and sharing your stories and changing the narrative, all the work that you are doing to change the narrative and putting your, your humanity into this. And thank you, Georgia. Thank you for coming tonight. Sue, thank, thank you, you so much. This has been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Okay. Georgia Fort, thank you very much. Okay, everybody, that's our show. That's our show. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. I want to thank again Georgia Ford. Please thank Georgia. Please. Yes. And Judah Gardner. Come on, guys. You can come closer. You can come closer. And uh, Brittany Delaney. And Day Yang. Day. Day Yang. Zippy Lasky and Molly Roth and Haley Garland. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. And Katherine Horowitz, our audio engineer, sharing that story with us, wearing two hats. And John Robinson on back there at the board as well. And Ellie Simonette on the lights. And Bonnie Allen, thank you for taking our pictures. And Carolyn Denton, our volunteer. And the wonderful staff here at the Women's Club. Yes, and this beautiful room. All right, we will be back soon with another island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>